Hello, and welcome to the Original Jurisdiction Podcast. I'm your host, David Latt, author of a Substack newsletter about law and the legal profession, also named Original Jurisdiction, which you can read and subscribe to by visiting davidlatt.substack.com. You're listening to the 13th episode of this podcast, recorded on Thursday, February 23. I post episodes every other Wednesday. A big thanks to this podcast's sponsor, NextFirm. NextFirm helps big law attorneys become founding partners. To learn more about how NextFirm can help you launch your firm, call 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com. My guest today is Judge Stephen Vaden of the U.S. Court of International Trade. Before joining the bench, he served as general counsel of the Department of Agriculture. I'm keeping this introduction brief since Judge Vaden and I discuss his very interesting educational and career path in the episode. In teasing this episode in the newsletter, I said that it would be of special interest to Article Three devotees, referring to Article Three of the Constitution, which established the federal judiciary. Even if you're fairly knowledgeable about the federal courts, as many of you are, I'm guessing you don't know much about the Court of International Trade. It's an Article Three court, so its members serve for life, and they frequently sit by designation on other Article Three courts, including circuit courts. Decisions of the court are appealable up through the federal system, first to the federal circuit and ultimately to the Supreme Court. In our conversation, Judge Vaden provided me with an excellent overview of his court, its interesting and important work, some of its unique features, and for my younger listeners, the benefits of clerking for the court. But we covered lots of other ground as well, including his service as GC of the USDA, his upbringing on a farm in western Tennessee, and tons of great career advice. Without further ado, here's my interview of Judge Stephen Vaden. Judge, thank you so much for joining me. Good to be here, David. So tell me, where are you right now? Are you in Tennessee, where you're based, or are you in New York, where the court usually sits? Well, I'm in Tennessee. I roughly spend about half the month in my home in Tennessee. And then I'm in New York for seven to 10 days per month. And then for the remaining period of the month, if it's a slower month, I'm in Tennessee. Or if I've got other engagements, then I'm maybe elsewhere about the country. But the wonderful thing about the environment that we have now is that wherever I am, you can rest assured I'm working on something court-related. So, <laughs> and we are a court of national jurisdiction, as you know. So we're limited by subject matter. We're not limited by geography, like many federal courts are. So we are allowed, thanks to Congress's graciousness, to live anywhere in the country as long as we are willing to pay our travel to New York. The taxpayer does not fund our travel to New York since that is our duty station. I pay that out of my own pocket. And I'm very consistent about making certain I have a regular presence in the courthouse since the taxpayers have provided a nice office for me in Manhattan. Oh, interesting. I did not know that. I wasn't sure if that was covered. I know that when circuit judges sit on calendars, for instance, that's covered. But that is interesting about New York. Once you become a senior judge under the law, then your home, wherever that may be, becomes your duty station. And at that point it is possible for the federal government to pay for your travel, in this case to New York, or if you were a judge somewhere else to wherever your court is located. But for active judges, if you are traveling to your duty station from somewhere that is not your duty station, you pay that out of your own pocket. 
So another perk of senior status. But we'll circle back to this in a bit in terms of the work of the court and its jurisdiction and whatnot. But let's start with your upbringing. So speaking of Tennessee, I believe you grew up in Western Tennessee. Yes, I grew up in a small town called Union City, which is where I am now. Still have a home here, my primary home. My father was a farmer and a local businessman. My mother was a retired nurse. And so both of my parents were much older than your typical parents. My father was 64 when I was born. Wow. And I am his oldest child. I have a younger brother. He lived until the age of 97. So I was very fortunate to gain from his tutelage. And I think that's where my love of history came from. But because he was self-employed his entire life, And in a later stage of his life, when we came along, he took us everywhere that he went. And so from a young age, we learned a lot about business, interactions with government, and things that, you know, property owners and business people have to deal with that usually, you know, 10-year-olds don't know much about. (laughs) But because my father would take us with him wherever he went, in some aspects, we matured more quickly than others. Did you have any lawyers in the family? No. Neither of my parents graduated from college, and there were certainly no lawyers in the family. So I am what they now term a first-generation lawyer. And that's probably something that I'm very sympathetic to in my outlook at law students as well as clerks and young lawyers, because if you don't have someone who has walked that path before, you have to learn everything yourself. And that means that you've got to watch out for the pitfalls yourself. And you may not have certain people whispering in your ear, telling you wise things that other people do because they have lawyers in the family. And so that's something that I'm particularly attuned to. I think it's important that the law is a profession and at one time was a guild that we have people join the law from all different backgrounds because it's those backgrounds and their uniqueness, I think, with regard to both lawyers and judges that bring a lot of the expertise that people end up paying good money for. So that's interesting. You mentioned your father was a farmer. And I believe I heard this on a prior podcast you were interviewed on, maybe the Heritage one. You got a little exposure to law at an early age, even though you were not growing up with lawyers in the family, right? That's definitely right. Yeah. So anytime you own property, you obviously have interactions with government, whether it be zoning or property regulation, eminent domain, normal contractual relations with people who wish to lease your property, all sorts of things that come up. And my father was also a landlord, as am I. I now own those properties. He owned mainly residential properties, but also a couple of commercial properties. And so anytime you have this happen, you get into disputes. And, you know, I found that I had a natural affinity for representing my father, as it were. (laughs) He was in many ways my first client. And, you know, I was young and knew a lot less than he did, which meant that I was more willing to engage in jousting with governmental officials than perhaps he would be initially inclined to do. But to his great credit, he let me do it. I had some success, including rolling back a whole bunch of property tax increases that he got around the time I was early in college. As you know, in administrative proceedings, you don't have to be a lawyer. An individual can choose another individual who is not a lawyer to represent them if he or she wants to. So there was nothing inappropriate about what I was doing. It may have been a little strange, but I found that I was good at it. I enjoyed it. And quite frankly, a lot of what I saw that my father had to deal with 
informed my outlook on legal problems and trying to focus on the practicalities of what everybody's stakes are. So you were involved in some of those legal proceedings, I guess, when you were studying at Vanderbilt when you were in college? Correct. And then did you decide during college that you wanted to go to law school? Did you go straight through to Yale Law? I did not. I was torn. Law was something that was obviously on my radar from the time I entered college because of the natural affinity that I have toward issues of that type. But I also love American history. And so I I had a wonderful mentor at Vanderbilt named Thomas Schwartz, with whom I still remain in good contact. And if I hadn't have gone to law school, I probably would have gone to graduate school in history. Hmm. And either way, he wanted me to go to Yale because Yale has an excellent American history program. And Yale, of course, also has a good law school. And I did not make the decision for law school until probably midway through spring semester as a senior in college. So it was too late at that point to apply for the next year. And he emphasized to me wisely that that was not a problem, that it was actually a good thing that I would have some time to further mature before I went to law school and I shouldn't feel guilty or pressure because I wasn't marching straight through, that a lot of people burn out that way. And that's definitely some of the best advice I ever took. And so I had a gap year or gap 18 months, whatever you want to call it, between May of 2004 and the fall of 2005. And quite frankly, David, that was one of the happiest periods of my entire life because I spent that entire time with my father back home in Union City and we worked renovating some of his rental properties. And so, you know, there are certain houses that we literally, you know, tore back, not quite to the studs, but, you know, we tore everything out and completely redid. And, you know, those particular houses, which I now own following my father's passing, have a particular warm memory in my mind because my father and I worked on them together. And it actually ended up forming part of my essay that I wrote to law school which if you ever wonder whether law schools read those things, when I attended the Yale Admitted Students Weekend or whatever it was that they had at the time, somebody who apparently read my essay came up to me and said, you're the guy that spent the summer renovating houses. You know, I've got some drywall work. (laughs) Do you think you'd be able to help me with And fortunately, the librarian, I didn't know he was a librarian at the time, was behind me in line and he overheard this and he said, you know, he's got a lot to focus on as a student here. You're going to have to find a professional for that and kind of saved me (laughs) from having to deal with that. But he did let me know that they do read those things that that you said. Oh, my gosh, that's hilarious. (laughs) So when you were in law school, what were you thinking about in terms of a career? Were you interested in something at the nexus of law and agriculture because of your farming background or construction law or real estate? What did you think about in terms of your future legal career? Well, the practice of law as I knew it was kind of your small town general practitioner who's usually a solo and a jack of all trades and can do some litigation, obviously does a lot of trusts and estates and real estate matters. So that's the legal practice that I knew. And of course, I knew in bigger cities, there were larger firms. And when I'm saying bigger cities, I'm thinking Memphis and Nashville, not necessarily D.C. and New York. And so all the way through most of my district court clerkship, which was the second clerkship that I did, 
If you would have asked me, where are you going to practice law? I would have told you I'm going to be practicing law in Tennessee. And it was really the economy that went off a cliff in 2008, not long after I graduated, which affected all manner of law firms, but mid-sized law firms, particularly of the type that are found in places like Tennessee at the time, that sent me on the path that I ended up taking to D.C. and now New York City. So the one thing that I tell people, and I fortunately have an opportunity to speak to students and, of course, my clerks pretty frequently, is don't think that you can plan your path in life out. Because if you would have asked me at any point, would I be where I am now? No. You know, to be perfectly honest, the two most prominent jobs I have held, I did not know existed in law school. Hmm. And yet a decade or so out of law school, I was uh, general counsel of a cabinet agency less than a decade out. And then I became a judge on a court that I never read a case, certainly when I was in law school, that it had issued. And there's no way in the world, even if I had known these jobs existed when I was in law school, that I could have plotted a path to get there. And so what I tell people is, it's a quote from Vernon Jordan, the great Democratic consigliere who passed away not too long ago. And he said, opportunity is never convenient. Hmm. And that's always stuck with me. It's never going to be exactly the right time to take advantage of an opportunity. So what I've learned from his quote and from my own life is, you know, literally when the phone rings and somebody calls to make you an offer, unless there's a strong reason to say no, say yes, see where it goes. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, say yes, at least to the conversation, that is. Yeah. And then ultimately, you know, if the offer is making sense, even if it may not be the perfect time, it's never going to be the perfect time. Take them up on it because they may not call again. That is a good point. <laughs> so did you summer at a Tennessee firm when you were in law school or how did that go? You had two clerkships. You had a Sixth Circuit clerkship. You had a Western District of Tennessee clerkship. How did you end up going to a large law firm after that second clerkship? So I split my time. I did the first half of the summer in Washington, D.C. at Patton Boggs. They had a reception at Yale Law School when I was a 2L. Never heard of them before, but I saw they had something that they called political law. Sounded interesting to me. Went to the reception, really hit it off with some of the partners. And in the end, Patton Boggs was the only standing offer I had when it came time that I needed a job in the private sector. And so that's where I went. Wow, very interesting. And tell us a little bit about your practice at Patton Boggs, now Squire Patton Boggs. What did you focus on? What were some of the things that you particularly found interesting or enjoyed? That firm was a blast. Most people can't say that about the firm they worked at, but Patton Boggs, as you know, was originally formed as a lobbying firm. And then the law firm grew up around it as they needed to serve their lobbying clients. And that meant it had a very convivial atmosphere a very client and social focused atmosphere. And it also meant it was entrepreneurial, which is to say that if they thought you were capable of doing something, they would let you do it. And so I got to kind of straddle the public policy practice, which is what they called lobbying, working with Ben Ginsburg, helping him represent Republican candidates, pollsters, donors, lobbyists, people who want to influence the political process. And then I also did litigation, particularly appellate and high stakes litigation. And where my sweet spot was between those two 
was if we had a political law matter where a client wanted to litigate because there were some election rules or something that were either hurt them or harmed them, they wanted to challenge or defend, or heaven save them, if they found themselves under some type of investigation, whether it be from the Federal Election Commission, whether it be from the House or Senate Ethics Committee, or whether it even be from the Department of Justice in a criminal matter. I was the litigator in the political law group. So that meant I kind of bridged that divide between, for example, the white collar team and the political law team because I could speak both languages. So it was an experience that I wouldn't have traded for the world. And to get back to the point that they were firm that if they thought you could do it, they let you do it. You know, when I was a third year associate, they had a client whom they represented in a lobbying matter, a rulemaking proceeding, and the client didn't get the result that it wanted. And the client decided they wanted to suit a challenge. And the lobbyist looked up the statute and said, well, this goes directly to the Court of Appeals. It has to be a petition for review. It bypasses the trial court. And he talked to somebody in the litigation division, and they were like, well, Baden's our Court of Appeals clerk. Go talk to him. And so as a result of that, starting as a third-year associate and continuing on into my fourth year, I got to first chair and argue for a paying client a case before the D.C. Circuit. We won that case, too, three to zero, beat the federal government. And that's not something many law firms of any size, particularly a size of Patton Boggs, would allow an associate that junior to do. And yet they had confidence in me and allowed me to do it. So I'm forever grateful for that. And I wish there was more of that in law firms today. I'll just close and circle on this point. I was recently at a judicial conference and somebody asked me, you know, we have all these junior attorneys who work for us. You know, are you willing to, you know, schedule a motion for oral argument that you wouldn't necessarily normally schedule for oral argument in order to give them some practice? And what I told the attorney who answered it in, in front of the conference was, look, I've had a number of occasions where there is a law firm partner arguing in front of me because the title behind his name is partner. And yet when I ask questions, because I'm looking at the entire courtroom, I can clearly see it as the associates at the table who know the answer, know where I'm going with my question, and quite frankly, should be at the podium instead of the partner arguing the case. <laughs> and so what I told them is titles don't matter to me. What matters to me as a judge is can you answer the question that I'm asking? And so what you need to realistically be doing is put your ego aside. And if you're not the best person to argue the case because you don't know the facts backwards and forwards, then bring that associate up and let him or her talk to me. I can deal with somebody who's never been in court before and doesn't necessarily understand all the procedures. That's very easy to work through and work with. I'm very sympathetic to that. We were all young at one time and did something for the first time. What I don't like is somebody who doesn't know what they're doing and is up there because they're the partner and they think that they should, because of their bigger title, be the one handling it. That to me is bad client representation. And so I encourage them to ask themselves, are you the best person to argue this? Or is that associate who spent the past year digging through all thousand pages of the record and knows it backward and forward better to handle the specific questions I'm going to be asking? That's a great point. And I think a lot of times 
part of the challenge is convincing the client because I think maybe the client is reassured by the title, but I know exactly what you're talking about. There are many times where the associates are furiously scribbling something or kind of twitching because they know exactly how to answer that question and the partner is stumbling. So I totally get it. So you were at Squire Patton Boggs and then that group, I guess, moved to Jones Day, I believe. It did. When Patton Boggs became Squire Patton Boggs, when that merger occurred, the group for whom I worked took other offers and determined that Jones Day was a better offer. And so they went to Jones Day and were kind enough to take me to Jones Day with them. And I was uncertain about that move, David, because as you can tell, I really loved my time at Patton Boggs. They were very good to me. And I seriously considered staying behind. But once again, in a theme that I think, if we're being honest, is with most people's lives who've had any measure of success, is a wise voice whispered in my ear. And that wise voice came to me and said, look, I know that you have concerns about whether Jones Day is the right place for you, but here's what I'm going to tell you. It may not be your forever home, but I think it's going to be the place that gets you to where you need to go. So take the leap and go there. And I'm very glad I listened to her because that ended up being 100% true. And so tell us that story, actually, about how you made the jump from Jones Day to the Department of Agriculture during the last administration, eventually rising to become the Senate-confirmed general counsel to that department. Well, we represented a number of presidential candidates in the 2016 election. Of course, most famously, Donald Trump, who won, but we also represented Rick Perry, Chris Christie, Scott Walker as well. So there were four presidential candidates early in the primary process that were represented by the three partners of the Jones Day political group. And then the two associates, myself and a good friend, Annie Donaldson, we did the grunt work on them and we're, we're happy to do so. We had represented the Romney campaign both times he ran. Unfortunately, he didn't win. So there were no opportunities that came from that in government service. But in August of 2016, I remember it well, Don McGahn, who later became White House counsel and was President Trump's top outside counsel at the time, came to me and said, if then candidate Trump wins, think about some places you might like to serve in the government and give me a list of four or five. And I joked that August was the last time the polls looked anything approaching good before Election Day. But I gave it some thought and I put down four or five items. I thought about it over a weekend, actually, before I returned it to him. When I did, it wasn't long before he came down to my office and he said, you put down agriculture. He's like, nobody puts down agriculture who's given this <laughs> opportunity. They all want to work at the White House or, you know, somewhere. Why did you put down agriculture? And I reminded him of my background and that I knew the communities USDA serve because my community is one of them. Very familiar with the work of the department. And at that point, my father had passed away. And so I was not only helping him with the farm, it was my farm. So I was familiar with their work and it was personally meaningful to me. And you could literally see the gears turning in Don's head as I was talking. And he just said, you know, this makes perfect sense. It's like, how would you like to be general counsel of the Department of Agriculture? <laughs> and I said, well, that sounds great to me. And he said, good, we'll put that down. And I really didn't give it too much more thought until, you know, he won on election night. And then Don said, you know, congratulations, you're on the landing team for USDA and you'll be there on day one running the legal shop. And, you know, I was there. He made me, through President Trump's approval, made me acting general counsel. And then in September of 2017, let's see, having just turned 35, 
I was nominated to be a Senate-confirmed officer and the head general counsel of one of the largest cabinet agencies in all the federal government. Wow. So it was kind of a confluence of opportunity, ability, and my background came together to make that the perfect role. And if you took me back to that date in 2016, knowing what I know now, and said, Stephen, I'll give you whatever position in the federal government you want, just name it. After having done what I've done, I would pick the general counsel of the Department of Agriculture all over again. When I die, I may still tell you that that's the most fun job I ever had. Hmm. Very interesting. And I'm curious, at the time, your title, actually, going back to whether titles matter, you were just an associate at Jones Day, right? You had not Correct. made a partner. And then you went eventually to become the Senate-confirmed general counsel to a major agency. So that's great. Can you now talk about how you moved from heading the legal function at the Department of Agriculture to a judgeship on the Court of International Trade? I believe you received a fateful phone call. That's right. I did not apply for the position. I knew that the court existed at that point. I want to make that clear. Obviously, at USDA, we were involved in the trade policy that President Trump was implementing because Agriculture is one of the few areas where America has consistently won on trade. And so that means when America takes a trade action that other countries don't like, one of the first things they retaliate against is America's agricultural exports. So we were dealing with that and trying to compensate farmers who were being harmed because most notably China was, they didn't have a complete embargo, but they weren't buying anywhere near the amount of corn, soybeans, pork, and other products that they typically buy from American farmers. And thus prices were being affected. And so I had actually received a phone call from someone who had clerked for the Court of International Trade, was aware there was a vacancy, had been told that I had good relations with the White House counsel and wanted me to pass along his name as someone they should consider. And after meeting with the gentleman and talking with people whom I trusted, I was happy to do so. And so I did so. Never gave the court another thought. And then, as I've mentioned before, you know, one day I was on an official trip out to visit the United States Department of Agriculture's Office of General Counsel facility in San Francisco. Believe it or not, we have an office there. We have 13 offices around the country. USDA Office of General Counsel does. And I was walking back from office to my hotel in downtown San Francisco and my phone rang. And when the White House calls you, it appears a certain way on your cell phone. So I knew it was the White House. And I wasn't going to be dumb enough to take a phone call from the White House on the streets of any city, much less San Francisco. (laughs) And so I waited till I got back to my hotel and they had left a message and it was a friend of mine from the council's office. And they said, give me a call back. And without telling me what it was they wanted to discuss, but that was normal. I returned the call and we started talking about trade matters and, you know, things that had popped up that I had worked on in the administration and what have you. And I thought that he wanted me to serve as a spokesman for the president's trade policy to rural America, which, as I've mentioned, was at the tip of the spear being affected by it. So I interrupted and I said, look, if you want me to serve as a spokesman for the president's trade policy, I'm happy to do that. But as you know, I've got to clear that with the secretary of agriculture because that affects our constituencies a whole lot. And that's a sensitive topic. And he said, oh, no, 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 no. That's not what this is about. Have you ever considered serving on the Court of International Trade? (laughs) And I paused and I literally said, well, I didn't see that coming. (laughs) And then he proceeded to sell me on why the White House thought it would be a good idea for me to serve on this court. And I listened to him and I asked some questions. 
and I asked him if I could have some time to think about it. And he said, yes. He's like, absolutely. You should think about this because this has literally hit you out of the blue. And so I called friends of mine whom I trusted, some of whom were people that served in the Trump administration and had been made to judge. Some of them had been judges for years. And I called up a couple of very close friends from my law school class. And quite frankly, I've said this before, I, I was looking for someone to tell me no. If they had offered this to me, I would not take this position. Then I was looking for someone to tell me. Because to get back to my earlier point, it wasn't a convenient opportunity. I really loved my job at USDA. Loved going to work every day. Didn't mind the long hours. It made me happy to do what I was doing on behalf of people like the people I grew up with in Union City, Tennessee. But if I told you whom I spoke with, David, you would instantly recognize these names. These are nationally known, largely appellate judges whom I called up. And without missing a beat, every one of them told me, gee, if they'd offered that to me, that's a great gig. I would have taken that. And so having not found anyone to tell me, no, I wouldn't do that. I don't think it's the right move for you. After about three or four weeks, I called the counsel's office back and I said, look, I've given it some thought. If it is the president's desire to nominate me for this position, I will accept the nomination. And they said, outstanding. Uh, and then the process began. And, you know, the background check itself took six months. So it wow. was six months from the time that and I'd already received a background check because I'd already been nominated and confirmed by the Senate. So that tells you how intense those background checks are, because it was my second go round for a nomination. But, you know, it was six months from the time I told the White House, yes, I'm willing to do this till the announcement was made publicly. Now, I had to keep my mouth shut during the entire process. I couldn't tell anybody about it. Couldn't even tell the Secretary of Agriculture about it. Didn't want it leaking until everything came back hunky-dory. And, you know, then I went up and told the Secretary the day before it that this would be coming out. And the White House announced it one afternoon, I think in early October. This podcast is being sponsored by NextFirm. If you have wondered whether launching a law firm could be the best next step for your career, NextFirm has the experience and expertise to help. Contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com today to learn more. So let's turn to the court now. I think a lot of people are not as familiar with the work of the Court of International Trade compared to other Article Three courts because it is an Article Three court and you do have life tenure. So tell us a bit about that. What types of disputes does it hear? You mentioned earlier it's a court of national jurisdiction. What's the main statute it's construing? Fill us in for those who are not familiar with the work of the court. So we are a national court that hears matters affecting trade. Most of the items that get appealed to us are final decisions of two agencies, the Department of Commerce or the Customs Service, which is now part of the Department of Homeland Security. And they're nearly all administrative in matter. So what I tell people is we are the D.C. Circuit of trial courts. We are officially a trial court, but 70% of the work we do is what the D.C. Circuit does or any other circuit judge does when they get a petition for review of agency action. Trials happen in our court occasionally in custom matters, but they're not frequent occurrences. We are appellate in nature. We are always reviewing a decision that an agency has already made, and they file an administrative record, and then the parties file briefs arguing whatever legal points they wish, pro and con, 
about the decision that the agency has made, and then we have oral argument and write an opinion dispensing with it. And that's most of our work. So we can have a trial in a customs matter. Customs matters, you have to remember, are basically tax matters. They're about the duties that you pay. Sometimes how something is classified may turn on a factual issue, and so we may have to have a trial over that. But when that happens, it's almost never a jury trial because basically every case that comes before us is a corporation versus the government. The government is a party in every one of our cases, and then it's a private party suing them most of the time. The government can be a plaintiff occasionally, but most of the time they're a defendant. And so these are sophisticated parties who are represented by lawyers, and they don't want a jury. And so (laughs) if it's going to go to a trial, they almost always opt for a bench trial. I think in the past 20 years, the Court of International Trade has had two jury trials. Oh, wow. Interesting. And that's it. So we are a specialized court. We do administrative law. I know many people think we do trade law. It's administrative law in a trade context. But if you're formulating an argument about whether the agency looked at the record properly or not, unless it's a statutory interpretation question, we're dealing with issues of administrative law. And so that was my background in a litigator. And then, of course, at USDA, very familiar with the process of rulemaking, individual agency adjudication, how that works from both sides. I've sued agencies. I've been the agency. So I feel like I have a complete perspective of what it's fair to expect people interacting with the government to do and what it's fair to expect the government to do when they're interacting with the private sector. And so I think that experience from my background has come in very handily. The court has nine seats. There are currently seven filled. We have two vacancies. And the other unique thing about our court, David, is that we have a statute which actually brings politics into play. We are the only Article Three court, and I think the only federal court period, even counting the ones that are not Article Three, where the statute says that no more than five members of our court may be affiliated with the same political party. Huh. And so... That means in order to be a judge on our court, you have to declare a political affiliation. Now, it's no surprise what my political affiliation is, having served in the Trump administration. But that does mean that when you look at our court in particular, if you're someone who strongly thinks, and I don't think this necessarily comes into play on trade issues and administrative law issues, that the party of the president nominating them determines how they're going to vote, you can't guarantee that because, for example, If President Biden were to want to fill both of the vacancies on our court, with our current court composition, at least one of those vacancies that would be filled would have to be filled by a non-Democrat. So, for example, President Trump had three appointments to the Court of International Trade. I was the last one to be confirmed. My colleague Miller Baker was confirmed before me, and he is also Republican-affiliated. But Tim Rice, who is also a Trump appointee, is a Democrat. He was one of the Democrats' chief counsel dealing with trade matters in the House Ways and Means Committee, which has jurisdiction over trade matters. And yet he is a Trump appointee. So I think our court, even though the statute is the only one that mentions politics, it's because it was redone in 1980 is when they rejiggered our court's jurisdiction and renamed it. It used to be the Customs Court and they changed it to the Court of International Trade. It was Article Three then, so the only thing that changed was the name, and they dealt with some of our remedial powers, cleaned it up. But they added this feature in, not clear exactly why they did it, not a lot of legislative history or things on it, but it's there. 
And presidents have abided by it in their appointments to the court. And I think it's a reminder and a helpful reminder in today's times that even though many times when newspapers report on judges' actions, one of the first things they say is what president appointed the judge, no one should think that that's the beginning and end of the thought process that went on or had anything to do necessarily with how the judge reached his or her decision. And that's certainly the case with our court. Oh, that's really interesting. I did not know about that. What are the major statutes at issue before your court? Are you usually construing the agency action for its consistency with this particular statute or saying it's not grounded in law or didn't go through proper procedures or what have you? So the Trade Act of 1930, as it has been amended multiple times since then, forms the basis for a lot of what we review because it allows the Commerce Department to receive petitions from American industries which believe that they are being harmed by unfair foreign competition. And if the Commerce Department investigates and determines that industries in a particular country are being subsidized by those countries' governments, it gives the Commerce Department the power to put tariffs on them to make up for the difference in even the playing field. And so it is those final decisions, putting tariffs or not putting tariffs, on specific goods made in specific countries that form the vast majority of the work we do. And then about 30% of the work we do are customs cases, which involve classification largely. And believe it or not, there is a list called the Harmonized Tariff Schedules of the United States. It is abbreviated HTSUS. And it attempts to list by category everything that you might ever want to bring into the United States Hmm. and assigns it a tax rate. And so companies will dispute with the customs service you know, we think it's this category rather than this category. And and it sometimes can make huge differences in tax rates. And so if they can't come to a mutual agreement on that, it comes to us for resolution. And so those are the two primary things. One of the more high-profile things that our court deals with, which definitely got revivified in the Trump administration and continues in the current administration, are a couple of unique powers that were given to the President of the United States by Congress in the 50s and 60s. These are known as Section 232 and Section 301 for where you'll find them in the statute book. But they basically give the president a large grant of unilateral authority to place tariffs on countries and goods from certain countries if he believes one of two things is true. Either the importation of goods from this country is having a deleterious effect on our national security, that's Section 232, And that's the basis under which President Trump puts tariffs on steel and aluminum items from many countries around the world. And Section 301 is used if the president believes that for other reasons, the trade practices of a foreign country are having a deleterious impact on American industry. And the president can make these decisions after statutorily required investigations. And they had not been used for about 30 years when President Trump first started reusing them. The statutes have always been on the books. They just haven't been used. And under the law, we are the only court that can hear disputes when the president uses these statutes. They affected huge sectors of the economy and dramatically increased our caseload. We had more than 3,000 cases come in just challenging the tariffs that President Trump issued under Section 301. And another unique thing about these statutes I mentioned earlier that our court statute was last rejiggered in the early 1980s. 
if you're a history of the federal courts, you know that was before they rejiggered the statutes in the mid-80s dealing with federal jurisdiction. What I mean by that is prior to the mid-1980s, if you as a litigant raised a constitutional claim in federal court, federal courts were required to convene a three-judge panel in order to hear it, and then you had an automatic right of appeal to the Supreme Court. And in the mid-1980s, Congress said, this is giving the Supreme Court way too much work. We're going to change this. It'll just be a single district judge, and then it'll go up the normal way that we all know now. Well, we have a separate statute that governs us, and they did not amend our statute. And so that means that if you come to our court and you make a constitutional claim or you are challenging a decision made by the president himself under one of these two statutes that I just mentioned, we statutorily have to convene a three-judge court in order to hear it. And I am not on any of the panels hearing those challenges to President Trump's trade actions, but they are being heard by three-judge panels. Now, the unique thing about it is you don't get a direct appeal to the Supreme Court, which I don't understand, given how the statutory scheme has worked previously. Instead, you get three judges from us, and then you get three more judges from the federal circuit. But we are required to do it. Our statute hasn't been changed, and we follow the law. That's really, really interesting. And a bunch of folks, including academics like Professor Steve Vladek, have proposed having these three-judge courts for constitutional issues, even outside of the trade context, just because of what you're seeing now with judge shopping, where you file in a particular vicinage or section of a district, knowing you're pretty much going to get Judge X. So it's very, very interesting. And I will just put in a plug to any of my law student or young lawyer listeners Clerking for the Court of International Trade is a really interesting opportunity. As we were just discussing, you tackle issues of administrative law, constitutional law. It's really good for people who have a background in law and economics, and it has a lot of uh, applications as well. So think about Judge Vaden and his colleagues for clerkships. Can I say two quick things on that, David, about clerking for us? In addition to getting great administrative law training and getting great training in writing, If you're felicitous with numbers, it's not a requirement, but it's definitely a benefit if you've got statistical or scientific backgrounds, since some of those questions do reach us about commerce or customs doing computation. But the other thing I want to let people know is we're unique in how we do our clerkship program. In almost every other federal clerkship I'm aware of, you go to work for a judge and they just throw it at you. (laughs) There's no training. You learn on the job. When you come to the Court of International Trade, we have a clerk training program run by the judges ourselves. So most of our clerks start in the fall. So in starting in September of every year, we get all the new clerks together. We take them up to the library and judges of the Court of International Trade teach three-hour sessions so many times a week for the first month so that the clerks learn about the rules of our court what these agency adjudications are, how they reach us, what the typical questions are that we hear. We obviously don't tell them how to resolve them, but, you know, what's the legal framework that you're working with? So even if you don't know anything about trade law, which is true for most of our clerks, by the end of your first month here, you've had a very good course that will prepare you to do the work of a clerk in the cases that you will have while you clerk for us. So we have a very good clerk training program that may be unique in the federal judiciary. And I just wanted to plug that. Wow, that's great. And I think, therefore, people who don't have trade exposure should not rule themselves out. And it's certainly a lot better than the usual day or two of orientation that you get at most other courts. If you like administrative law, our court is the place for you. 
Excellent. So my final four questions are standardized for all guests. So my first question, Judge Vaden, is what do you like the least about the law? You know, the law is a business and it's necessarily so. People are earning a living. But what I don't like is I'm increasingly seeing the way the law is being practiced is not giving people time to think. And it's how much can you do simultaneously? That's not good for the lawyer's health, and it's not good for the lawyer's client. And I have seen an increase in the number of, I'll call them mistakes, because I don't want to make a legal judgment about malpractice, that I'm seeing from very expensive law firms. And I think it's because they're a business, but they're thinking that the law is like making widgets, and it's not. And they need to stop thinking about how many thousand hours can I make an associate work a year and start thinking about how can I serve my client best to get the result most in accord with the law and my client's interests. And that's not currently what I'm seeing, and it disturbs me. Very well said. Second, what would you be if you were not a lawyer or a judge in your case? Well, I think I'd be a history professor, as I said. Ah, yes. Mm -hmm. I love history. Most of my pleasure reading is historical in nature if it's nonfiction. And so I'm glad that I chose the path that I did. I think it's more naturally advantageous to me and fits in with more of my boxes that would need to check for my skills. But I love the study of history and spending time thinking about things. Third question, how much sleep do you get each night? You know, I try to get at least six hours of sleep every night, and I'm generally successful about that. But once I get past seven and a half hours, I have trouble staying asleep longer than that. So I kind of have a narrow range that I shoot for, and I'm a night owl. So when I was in private practice, I had a joke, but it wasn't a joke. If you needed me to be there before 10 o'clock in the morning, I needed 24 hours notice. (laughs) And that's still how I am. But on the other hand, I'll be there at eight o'clock at night without problem because I usually stay up till about two o'clock in the morning, reading and doing other things. So my clock tends toward being a night owl rather than a morning person by far. And I think it's important for people to figure that out for themselves in terms of when people do their best work. Finally, any final words of wisdom, such as career advice or life advice for my listeners? Well, you know, when I talk to law students and clerks, a lot of them feel pulled in two directions. They are scared to show who they truly are because they think that our legal practice and our world at large is so polarized that if they were to be honest about who they are, they might not get the job that they want. That is deeply unfortunate. But I also think there's another way to look at that. Jobs are important. Money's important. Happiness is also important. If you've got to hide a large part of who you are, whoever that may be, in order to work for what you think is your meant-to-be job, maybe you ought to ask yourself, is that really where I'm meant to be? People shouldn't have to hide who they are at work. And quite frankly, who they are shouldn't matter as much to whether they get hired. It should be, is this person competent and will they do a good job for my client? And that should be about all that matters. But even where it is not, I just encourage people, even though it may result in disappointment in the short term, it will result, in my view, not only in happiness, but much greater success in the long term. If you're honest about who you are, 
let your employers or prospective employers know who you are and only go to those who are willing to accept you for who you are. I'll just close with this thought, David. When I look at the disappointments, and I put that in quotation marks that I've had, you know, the firm that rejected me, the Washington, D.C. firm that rejected me, and so I went to Patton Boggs instead or what have you. Looking back at it, thank goodness they rejected me. I wouldn't have been happy there, and people I know who went there weren't happy either. (laughs) But it had a bigger name than Patton Boggs at the time, so that's where they went. Thank goodness for things like that. And I think that whether you believe in a higher power as I do or whether you just believe that things generally end up as they should be just because that's the way nature usually works, that really is the case. And, you know, like I said, you can't plot out your career path from start to finish. Don't try. Go with the flow. And when someone gives you an opportunity, let the default be you say yes. That is a great note to end on. And I am just so grateful, Judge, for your time and your insight. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, David. Thanks so much to Judge Faden for joining me. I'm grateful for all the insight into the court of international trade, which is one reason I wanted to have him on the show. But I think the best part of our discussion was all the excellent career advice. Judge Vaden talked about the importance of saying yes to new opportunities, which brings me to our sponsor. Thanks to NextFirm for sponsoring this episode of the Original Jurisdiction podcast. NextFirm has helped many attorneys to leave big law and launch firms of their own. If you would like to explore this opportunity, contact NextFirm at 212-292-1000 or email careerdevelopment at nextfirm.com to learn more. Thanks to Tommy Harron, my sound engineer here at Original Jurisdiction. And thanks to you, my listeners and readers, for tuning in. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at davidlatt at substack.com. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at David Latt, and on Instagram at David Benjamin Latt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Please subscribe to the Original Jurisdiction newsletter if you don't already over at davidlatt.substack.com. This podcast is free, as is most of the newsletter content but it is made possible by paid subscriptions to the newsletter. The next episode of the podcast should appear two weeks from now on or about Wednesday, March 22. Until then, may your thinking be original and your jurisdiction free of defects.